Father, what we want more than anything is for you to speak to us. We don't need words of human wisdom. We need the very words of God. And so we ask that you would, by the Holy Spirit, speak to us through this passage this morning. Please use this passage, uh, these verses, to show us our need for you, to conform us into the image of your Son, to transfigure us from one degree of glory to another, to increase our love for you and our delight in you. We do love you, and we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38. This is the word that God has for you this morning. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Joda, the son of Joannan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Elizer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meliah, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sirug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxed, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalaleel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. If today is your first time visiting First Baptist Church, Uh, you should know that we are a church that only preaches the genealogies. Like, you come next week, this is pretty much what you're going to get every single Sunday. Now, the reason that this is our text for this morning is because the last time I preached, I covered the baptism of Jesus from Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. And since we're going sequentially through the Gospel of Luke, uh, today we are covering the genealogy of Jesus from Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38. 
Now, some of you who do come every Sunday were probably wondering if I was just going to skip the genealogy and go straight into the temptation narrative in chapter 4. And that's because, if we're being honest, right, in our personal devotions, in our own Bible reading, like at the very best, we just quickly skim through the list of names. Like I am assuming that unless you are Judah and you have just finished your PhD in mathematics, uh, you did not know that there was a guy named Math in the genealogy. But look at verse 26. He's right there. I will admit that this is the first time that I've really studied this passage in depth myself. Uh, the genealogies, right, whether it's uh, this one or uh, the many genealogies that we find in Genesis uh, or in Ruth or in First Chronicles, like nobody's life verse comes from any of these passages. Uh, I have never seen wall art. I have never seen a greeting card with any of these verses. But we have to understand that genealogies were a really big deal in Israel. It was really important that you knew who your ancestors were. Your genealogy once determined where you lived, right? Like what tribe you were in. Think about the land allotments in the book of Joshua. Your genealogy would determine your inheritance. Even after the exile, right? So when most of the tribes are scattered and only a remnant comes back to the land, all the genealogies were really important for reestablishing Jewish society. Uh, for example, look at Ezra 2.62. Uh, these sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there, and so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. And then we can skip ahead to New Testament times. You remember that the Apostle Paul, right? He was once very proud of the fact, Philippians chapter 3, that he was of the tribe of Benjamin. He knew his genealogy. Even in this book, uh, we met a faithful lady named Anna in chapter 2. Well, she was of the tribe of Asher. Uh, she knew her genealogy. And of course, the Messiah. And one of the necessary qualifications was that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. The Lion of Judah. Where the scepter shall not depart from Judah. And another necessary qualification was that he would be the son of David, descended from David's line, as God promised to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Genealogies were very important. And so it's not surprising, given the importance of genealogies, and specifically the necessary genealogical qualifications in order to be the Messiah— that two of our four Gospels spend a lot of ink laying out for us Jesus' genealogy. And before I go on with the genealogy from Luke, let me just address the elephant in the room. Uh, a bunch of you are thinking about this right now. You say, what is up with the differences between Luke's genealogy and Matthew's genealogy? Well, let me point out three differences. One, uh, the major one, uh, why are there all these different names, right, from David onwards? Two, uh, why does Luke go all the way back to Adam, whereas Matthew starts from Abraham? 
And third, this is a little bit more big picture, but why does Luke put the genealogy here, in the middle of all these narratives, instead of at the beginning of his gospel, like Matthew? Let me address the first question now, and then we'll get to the other two later. Why are there so many different names? Uh, So keep a finger in Luke chapter 3 and flip back to the very first chapter of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. I want you to just kind of scan your eyes through Matthew's genealogy. You'll notice that from Abraham to David, that's basically the same as Luke's list. But it's from David onwards. The names are entirely different. Matthew goes from David to then Solomon, and then down through the line of kings that you can read about in First and Second Kings. And he goes all the way down to Mathen, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. But Luke, on the other hand, goes to David through another one of his sons, Nathan. And he gets to Nathan through a whole bunch of different names than what Matthew has, starting with a guy named Heli. And so, what is going on here? Let me give you a few possibilities. One possibility is that there's a bunch of uh, leveret marriages going on here. You say, what is a leveret marriage? A leveret marriage is a specific circumstance laid out in the Mosaic Law. That says that if a man dies childless, a close relative could marry that widow to give the dead guy a legal heir, right, so that his family line would be preserved. And so some would suggest that maybe what happened here is that a generation before Joseph, uh, this happened. And so Joseph had both a biological father and a legal father. And so one of these genealogies gets to Joseph from a legal perspective, and the other one gets to Joseph from a biological perspective. Another related possibility is that Matthew is listing out the potential legal successors to David's throne, which is why Matthew goes through King Solomon. Although in Joseph's day, right, it would have been a hypothetical succession because there was no reigning Israelite king. Whereas Luke is giving us Joseph's biological family tree through Nathan. And the two happen to merge in the person of Joseph. Yet others will say, and I think I'm going to go with this camp, uh, that Matthew is giving us Joseph's genealogy and Luke is giving us Mary's. You say, if Luke's giving us Mary's genealogy, why would he exclude Mary's name? Well, typically back then, women would have been excluded from genealogies. Matthew includes a few specific women in his genealogy, but he's making a point with those women. Ordinarily, women would have been excluded. And so even Mary's genealogy, it starts with her husband, Joseph. And since there's no Greek term for son-in-law, it just says that Joseph was the son of Heli. But Heli is actually Mary's father and Joseph's father-in-law. That's not too foreign of a concept to us, Uh, When Frank and Tabitha said, I do, uh, Tabitha's parents became Frank's parents. And you say, well, tracing someone's genealogy through the mother's side, that would have been really unusual and unorthodox even back then. And I would say, yes, but the virgin birth is very unusual and unorthodox. 
Like there is a sense in which Jesus' genealogy like has to be unique. It has to be different, regardless of how the genealogy is constructed. Simply because he's the only human being who has ever been divinely conceived like this. Now, if Luke does indeed present Mary's genealogy instead of Joseph's, well, I think that fits the rest of the gospel as we've studied it so far. Because Matthew tends to focus much more on Joseph, right? Like, who is it that the angel appears to in the gospel of Matthew? It's Joseph. But Luke focuses much more on Mary. And so Luke tells us about the time that the angel appeared to Mary. And Joseph is a very minor character in this particular gospel. Mary is much more prominently featured. And so it's Mary who sings the Magnificat. And it's Mary who addresses the 12-year-old Jesus. Your father and I have been searching for you. Uh, Joseph says nothing. Joseph does very little in this gospel. And so, if we understand Matthew to be presenting Joseph's genealogy, and we understand Luke to be presenting Mary's genealogy, well, what we see is that both Mary and Joseph can independently trace their lineage back to David. And so Jesus gets his legal right to rule on David's throne from his adoptive father's side, and he gets the blood relation so that he's a physical descendant of David from his mother's side. With that said, at the end of the day, right, we just can't be sure. All three of those uh, theories and any others that uh, might be out there, well, they're exactly that. Right? They're, they're theories, they're, they're conjectures, they're, they're hypotheses. Uh, sure, some are better than others, but at the end of the day, right, they are all just kind of best guesses. But regardless of which of those three theories is true, or any other theories is true, uh, here's what we know for sure. That there is no contradiction or mistake in either genealogy. And we know that not only because the Bible is the word of God and is thus inerrant and infallible, but also because Matthew and Luke are no dummies. Right, like all these genealogical records would have been publicly accessible information, uh, at least until Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. And so anybody could have cross-checked any of this with the public records. And if they did, and they found errors in either genealogy, well, these gospels would have been quickly discredited. Like nobody is going to read a gospel and give up their life to follow Jesus when the gospel that tells his story can't even get these basic facts straight. Look, the very fact that these gospels were widely read and believed and then copied and transmitted and passed down to what we have today is clear evidence that these genealogies are correct. But as we turn our attention specifically to Luke's genealogy, because that's our text this morning, we still have to ask ourselves, like, what are we supposed to do with this? Look at that list. It's a list of 77 names. Some of them we recognize. Most of them, we have no idea who they are. And so what do we do with this genealogy? So in the time we have left, let me suggest to you four things that we should take away from this genealogy in Luke chapter 3. 
First, this genealogy shows us that we will be forgotten. This genealogy shows us that we will be forgotten. So there's 77 names in this list, and I want to focus on one, and it is not the one that you're thinking of. I want to focus our attention on Esli. So look at the end of verse 25. Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai. Uh, So what do we know about this Esli? Well, we know his father's name. His father's name is Nagai. His grandfather is the aforementioned Math. Uh, Maybe Esli was a godly man. Uh, It's a total guess. But look at what he names his son. He names his son after a minor prophet, right? That's got to count for something. And then his own son, Nahum, names his own son, Amos. And so, I mean... It's got to count for something. It's not like they're naming their kids Ahab or or Goliath, right? But other than that, other than what his father's name was and what his son's name was, we know absolutely nothing about Esli. Nothing. We just know that he lived and that he died. And it reminds us of those genealogies back in Genesis, right? When so-and-so had lived X years, he fathered such-and-such, so-and-so lived Y more years, and thus all the days of so-and-so were Z, and he died. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and so the genealogy goes on. Esli lived, and Esli died. Friends, I don't need to tell you that you are going to die. I don't need to convince you of that. I don't need to prove that to you. Right? You all know that to be true. But, let's be honest, in the busyness of everyday life, between school and work, family and changing diapers and doing laundry and watching the game and hanging out with friends and finishing that elusive project, whatever it might be, we easily lose sight of that truth. In the busyness of life, we forget about death And perhaps that's exactly what we're trying to accomplish in our busyness. To forget our mortality. But when we take a step back, we kind of zoom out from the the minute-to-minute busyness, the hecticness of our lives, to this kind of generation-to-generation view. right? Like in a genealogy, Luke chapter 3. We realize just how insignificant and short our lives really are. I think about this, we read this entire list, 77 generations in a minute. So Esli's entire life is summarized in one second. That's his legacy. That's all we know about him. Psalm 39.5 Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Esli's life, a mere breath. And so his entire life, as recounted in this genealogy, is summarized in a mere breath. Or as James puts it, we're like a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And remember, Esli... He is one of the most significant names in redemptive history. He's only 11 generations removed from the Savior of the world. 
Like without Eli, genealogically speaking, there is no Messiah. But he's just a footnote here. And be honest, you've never spent more than a second thinking about Eli. Well, if someone that's significant in the course of redemptive history, even Eli is so quickly forgotten, well, you and I stand absolutely no chance. Uh, let me illustrate this another way, because I think it's one thing to talk about this Sly dude, and it's kind of theoretical. Uh, let's bring it down just really practically, close to home. I want each of you to think about your own parents. Now I want you to think of your grandparents. I assume that many of us know the names of our grandparents. Or perhaps we met them, perhaps we know them personally. How about your great-grandparents? And now we're kind of stretching it, right? And your great-great-grandparents. So that's four generations removed from you. I assume that most of us don't even know their names, let alone what kind of people they were. Which means, applying that same logic forwards, in all likelihood, four generations down the line, you will be completely forgotten. Maybe they'll know your name. Maybe your name will be written somewhere in some genealogy like Sly. But in all likelihood, right, just four seconds after your name is read in that genealogy, just four generations down the line, no one's going to know anything about you. And that's somewhat jarring when we think about it. But we also know that it's true. One day, at least in this life, in this world, you and I will be just like Sly, a forgotten name in someone else's genealogy. Point number one, this genealogy shows us that we will be forgotten. Second, this genealogy shows us that God keeps his promises in his perfect time. So now let's go to the very end of the genealogy, a name that we're more familiar with, Adam. Adam, of course, along with his wife Eve, they were the first man and the first woman. They're dwelling with God in the, the Garden of Eden, and all is well until they disobeyed God, and they ate of the tree, and they sinned, an event that we refer to as the fall. Now, right after that fall, God gives a gracious promise. Right? The first gospel promise in Genesis 3.15, this is God talking to the serpent here, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. Uh, the seed of the woman is going to crush the devil for good. But here's something that, like, as those familiar with the New Testament, as those familiar with Jesus, as those familiar with the gospel story, uh, we might overlook. And that's this. If you're Adam and Eve, and you hear that promise, that your offspring is going to be the serpent crusher who is going to make all things new, you're not thinking, well, 76 generations down the line, uh, God is going to send that Savior. That Savior is going to be born. No, you're probably thinking that this promise 
is going to be fulfilled in Genesis chapter 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Cain, maybe he's going to be the one, the serpent crusher who is going to reverse the curse that we brought upon the earth. And that's part of the tragedy of Cain. Uh, Far from being the promised seed of the woman, he's very much the seed of the serpent, as he demonstrates by murdering his brother. Well, after Cain kills Abel, Eve has another son, Seth. And look at what it says about Seth and his son Enosh. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Okay, so Cain was wicked. But now, people are calling upon the name of the Lord. Cain wasn't the promised one, but maybe Enosh is. Or maybe it's Enosh's son, Kenan. Who is it going to be? You see my point. In every one of these 76 generations after Adam, those that hoped in God were wondering, is he the one? Will the promised Messiah be coming in this next generation? Are we going to see him? And that expectation would have been intensified with every subsequent promise that gave further information about the Savior. And so when God makes the promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, every subsequent generation had to wonder, well, is this the offspring of Abraham in whom all the families of the earth will be blessed? And then God makes the promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. And so again, every subsequent generation is wondering, is this the son of David, the Messiah, whose throne God will establish forever? But generation after generation after generation passes, most of them in complete obscurity. Like, who are these people? Who in the world is Eslai and Jodah and Melki? Who are these people? But God's people in each of these generations had to wrestle with when God was going to fulfill his promise. Has God cast us off for good? Is he going to send the Messiah? But now finally, right after what seems like forever, God's promise that he made all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 is being fulfilled in Jesus. And that's abundantly clear, even from what we've looked at in Luke chapters 1 through 3. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Right? He is here. After 76 generations, he is here. Here's the thing, like in man's eyes, right, according to man's clock, that promise took what seemed like forever to fulfill. Like generations upon generations died without seeing that promise fulfilled. But remember what Peter said with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And so the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. The promise-keeping God, the covenant-keeping God, absolutely kept his most important promise to mankind in his perfect timing. Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time 
had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And that's the beauty of the genealogy. Uh, That's what we see so clearly in a list like this that condenses 77 generations, hundreds of years, into 60 seconds. It allows myopic people like us to look past the days and past the years and even past entire generations. Uh, Again, we read that whole list in less than a minute. And we take a step back. And we see that even if in the eyes of man the Lord seems slow to fulfill his promise, well, God always keeps his promises in his perfect time. Now, practically thinking about that truth, well, if we can trust God to keep the most important promise of his promises to us, the promise to send the serpent crusher who would save us from our sins— arguing from the greater to the lesser, can we not then trust him with everything else? All the smaller things in life. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so can we not trust him who feeds the birds of the air to keep his promise to provide for our needs even when he seems slow in keeping that promise. And can we not trust him who gives the Spirit without measure to keep his promise to sanctify us and to conform us into the image of his Son, make us more holy, even when he seems slow in keeping that promise? Can we not trust him who judges justly to keep his promise to make all things right one day, even when he seems slow in keeping that promise. Because this genealogy shows us that we can trust him who promised that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent, even when he seemed slow to keep that promise. Point number two God keeps his promises in his perfect time. Point number three, uh, this genealogy shows us the uh, universality of salvation. Remember that one of the key differences between Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy is in how far back it goes. Uh, So Matthew goes back to Abraham, and that's likely because Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience— And so for Matthew, the the main point that he's trying to drive home in his genealogy is that Jesus is the offspring of Abraham. He's a true Jew. Uh, The Jews all knew the promise that God made to Abraham. Genesis chapter 22. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And so descent from Abraham along with descent from King David. Uh, Those are the two, like, important things that Matthew is trying to establish in his genealogy, which is why the opening verse of the Gospel of Matthew says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, because that's what he's trying to show. But Luke goes back further than Abraham. Luke goes all the way back to Adam. Because remember, Luke is writing also for a a Gentile audience. 
right? Most excellent Theophilus, right? He is writing also for a Gentile audience. And so Abraham is still important, right? His name is still in there and it still jumps off the page at us because of the significance of that name. But also important for Luke is to show that it's not just for the physical sons of Abraham, the physical offspring of Abraham, the Jews, that the Messiah has come. You remember what John the Baptist said in relation to Abraham. Luke 3, 8. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Uh, Don't just look at your genealogy and say, look, Abraham's there. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. God can take Gentile stones and raise up children for Abraham. That's what Jesus has come to do. And to show that, Luke goes all the way back to the common ancestor of all men. Uh, To demonstrate that this gospel is for Jew and Gentile. uh, For God's elect of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And so point number three, uh, this genealogy shows us the universality of salvation. As demonstrated by the fact that Luke goes all the way back to Adam. And so he's making the point That the one who came to save all the sons of Adam who are God's people was himself descended from Adam. But I think there's a little more going on here in Luke going all the way back to Adam than just the common ancestry of all humankind. Because if Luke's only point was that Jesus comes from the same ancestry as all people everywhere, well, think about it. He could have saved a bunch of ink and a bunch of papyrus. He could have stopped much earlier. Because there's another name earlier on the list from whom all tribes, tongues, peoples, and nations descend. It's Noah. Remember the flood. And so if that was the only point that Luke is trying to make, that Jesus came to save all kinds of people, well, Luke could have stopped at Noah, since all people descend from Noah. And if, Luke, if Luke's only point is, well, Jesus descended from Adam, and since we're all descended from Adam, Jesus can be our Savior as one of us. If, if that was his only point, well, Luke could have stopped right there. The son of Seth, the son of Adam, period. End of genealogy. But Luke doesn't stop there. He goes one step further, and it's a step with monumental implications. The son of Adam, the son of God. Why does he do that? That leads us to our fourth and final point, which is that this genealogy presents Jesus as the second Adam. The genealogy ends by telling us that Adam is the son of God. Now, technically, the Greek doesn't have the word son uh, really anywhere in the genealogy, except for the very beginning. Uh, It's obviously implied, though. Seth is of Adam, right? The son of Adam. And so Adam is of God, uh, the son of God. But now let's think. Where have we already seen that concept? Someone being called the son of God. We need to look no further back than the verses that directly precede the genealogy. 
Look at verses 21 and 22. Jesus' baptism. When all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And so it's right after Jesus is publicly declared to be the son of God that Luke then traces Jesus' genealogy to another man who also in a different sense is the son of God. Adam is the son of God in the sense that God himself formed Adam out of the dust of the ground and breathed into him the breath of life. But Jesus is the Son of God in an entirely different sense. In an eternal, a Trinitarian sense. A very God of very God, even as we recited together in the Nicene Creed this morning. Equal in every way with God the Father. Which then sets us up beautifully for the narrative that directly follows the genealogy. The temptation of Jesus. Luke chapter 4, look at the very next verses after Adam is called the Son of God in our genealogy. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God. You see that? The baptism, the genealogy, the temptation, they all deal with the same theme. The Son of God. Which explains the curious placement of this genealogy in Luke. Not before the birth narrative. We might expect it where Matthew has his genealogy. But right in between two other stories dealing with Jesus as the Son of God. At his baptism, he is declared by God to be the son of God. In this genealogy, he is linked to Adam, who is the son of God in a different sense. And through the temptation, and more importantly, in his victory in the temptation, Jesus demonstrates that he is altogether different from Adam. Whereas Adam, the son of God, he fell into sin when tempted by Satan— Jesus, the true son of God, he did not. Which has massive implications for us. We who have descended from Adam. Because when Adam sinned, he put all humanity, all of his descendants, all of us, under the curse of sin. It's a concept uh, that's called federal headship. It's this idea that Adam was our representative. He's our federal head. And so his failure is passed to each and every one of the next 75 names in that genealogy. They have one thing in common, and we have one thing in common with those 75 names. They're born with a sin nature. We are born with a sin nature passed down from Adam. And because of that, And because each of those next 75 names, like their father Adam, themselves chose to sin, all of those names, and all of us for that matter, we deserve an eternal punishment in hell 
for our rebellion against a holy God. In Adam, by association with Adam, because of our genealogical descent from Adam, in Adam all die. That's exactly Paul's point in Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Sin and death for all men came through the first Adam, the Son of God. But, and I think this is Luke's main point with this genealogy, well, the second Adam has now come. The second Adam, the true Son of God who himself was descended from the first Adam, the obedient Son of God who would do what the first Son of God could not uh, perfectly keep the law, never sin. Uh, The second Adam, who through his perfect righteous life most clearly demonstrated for us in his victory over the devil in his temptation and his substitutionary death on the cross for sinners, well, this Jesus would bring eternal life to those who had died in Adam. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15.22 We saw that verse earlier from Romans 5 that talked about death spreading to all men because all sinned. Well, this is how Paul now concludes that section. Look at verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life. For all men, right? He is contrasting the first Adam and the second Adam. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. First Adam. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. In Jesus, the second Adam. The first Adam's disobedience makes us sinners. The second Adam's obedience, his perfect righteous life, makes those who trust in him perfectly righteous. Point number four, this genealogy presents Jesus as the second Adam. So let's bring this all together. Point number one, this genealogy shows that we will be forgotten. Might lose track of this in our day-to-day busyness, but we will all die. And because of our sin, right, because we're in Adam— When we die, each of us deserves an eternity in hell. But, point number two, God keeps his promises in his time. Uh, Even when he, in our finite eyes, appears slow, 77 generations, well, God keeps his promises. And the most important of those promises for us is that he would send a Savior to save us from our sins— And point number three, that Savior is Jesus, who came not just for the Jews, the physical offspring of Abraham, but he came for sinners from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And point number four, most importantly, that Savior Jesus, the Son of God, came as the second Adam to undo what the first Adam did. Whereas the first Adam, as our federal head, he plunged the entire human race into sin. Well, the second Adam, 
Jesus Christ, as the federal head of all his people, lived the perfect life that the first Adam did not and granted to his people his perfect righteous record. So let me leave you here with just two brief exhortations. One for the unbeliever in the room and one for the believer. First for the unbeliever, you are not a Christian, but you're here with us today. We are so happy that you have joined us. We are so happy that you heard from God's word. But I leave you with this exhortation. Whether you understand the concept of federal headship or not, like whether you understand uh, what it means to be in Adam or not, uh, you know this much. You know that you're not perfect. And the more that you search within yourself, the more you find yourself to have fallen way short of God's perfect standard. Uh, you are not righteous, and you know it. And so the question for you is this. Are you going to trust in your own righteousness to get you to heaven? That is going to lead to nothing but judgment. An eternity in hell where you will pay for your sin because, again, you are not righteous. But the good news of this genealogy, the good news of the gospel, is that Jesus became a man descended from Adam, uh, just like you and me. And that as a man, he did what Adam and all who have descended from Adam, including me and you, could never achieve a perfectly righteous, sinless life. And the same Jesus would die on a cross, uh, suffering the punishment due our sins in place of sinners like me and like you, that he might give sinners his perfect record. So that if you trust in Christ today, you can not only have your sins forgiven, but you can also be made perfectly righteous in God's sight. And so I exhort you to trust Christ today. Now repent. Believe that he and he alone is the righteousness you need for heaven. My second exhortation is for the believers in the room. So given what we saw in points two through four, right, that, that in the gospel, the promise-keeping God has sent a savior for all mankind who is the second Adam who makes us righteous. Okay, combine that with point number one. How our lives here on earth are so short and insignificant. Like our earthly legacies all of the things that we build, well, within a few generations, they will be quickly forgotten. Does that not then press us with urgency to use the short time that we have here to expend ourselves for that which is eternal? To not get so caught up in the here and now like we're so prone to do, to just be busy about being busy, but to have our eyes firmly fixed on the kingdom of God, right? that which lasts eternally. Now, what that looks like is going to differ from believer to believer. 
But the question I'll leave you with is, how does taking a step back from your hectic life and looking at your time here on earth from like this generational, uh, genealogical perspective, how does that then call you to prioritize differently how you invest your time and your effort and your labor for the glory of God and his kingdom? Let's pray. Father, your word is infinitely rich and deep. Lord, we confess that even in this genealogy, we have just barely scratched the surface. Father, we pray that you would bless our study, our reflections, uh, our convictions. Uh, Lord, that you would work by the power of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of your people, uh, that you might bring yourself glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name.